Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back to episode two of The Hero's Journey. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host. Uh, very grateful to have all of our listeners joining us week in and week out. In episode two of The Hero's Journey, we meet with George Kimbrell, the legal director of the Center for Food Safety, also like Charlie, located in Portland, Oregon. In this episode, we discuss the role of the courts in enacting social change. George breaks down two conflicting visions of our food system and the planet and discusses how food law can enable a brighter future. George is one of the many litigators we'll meet with throughout the course of this podcast. And like Charlie, he highlights how the Davids of the world can continue to defeat the Goliaths and how those wins offer us every reason to stay hopeful and inspired as we continue on with this work. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm super stoked for those listening. George and I have been longtime colleagues um, at Center for Food Safety, for better or for worse. George, why don't you talk a little bit about the role you play at CFS? Well, definitely for better. Um, really, really excited about this podcast. Um, I'm the legal director here at uh, CFS, and I've been here my entire legal career, 17 years, 18 years or so. Um, at this point, I kind of oversee our legal operations and also am on our organizational management team. So um, we've got a team, six, seven lawyers, uh, and I'm in charge of those operations. I also have my own docket and lead some cases as well as uh, I'm second chair on other cases we have. Um, and then I have a range of policy things. I do legislative work, um, help help out in all those other areas uh, <laughs> since we're a small nonprofit. George, for our listeners, I'd love for you to break it down. Like, what is CFS? in terms of its strategy for change? Well, um, we like to think of ourselves with an outsized impact um, on everything from farm to fork as far as building a better food future. So you can think of us as maybe the NRDC of the food movement. That's um, not an apt comparison given that that organization is several, you know, much, much greater than us, a hundredfold greater than us as far as staff or budget. But that's the kind of impact that we'd like to have and the leadership that we'd like to have as far as the food movement. Um, and, you know, we use all different um, levers of change to try to build a better food future and stop harm to the environment and health from the current industrial paradigm, uh, industrial food production. Um, but, you know, legal change and using the law as a tool for change 
is is one of those probably are what we're best known for and uh, flagship part of of what we do. For our listeners, George and I are recording this the day after um, a draft decision had been leaked on Roe v. Wade. Um, and I think it's sitting heavily for George and I about the status of our judicial branch, but all the more reason to help folks understand the role of the courts in social change. So I wanted you to hone in on like, what is public interest law? Who practices it? What, how is it different than criminal law or civil procedure? What does it do? Yeah, and you know, I just would, I, before getting to that, I would say that obviously um, it's a, it's a, it was a huge news earlier this week having to do with the Dobbs decision being leaked. But as far as this podcast, one thing I think it, it really does show is um, that, that you can effectuate that, that, that change, the, the elimination of um, the right of privacy, of women's right to choose, that 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 decision portends for this summer is a huge social change that's going to be brought about by litigation and through the courts, a 30 year project from the hard right uh, to create that. And um, obviously that's a, a terrible tragedy, um, but it does show the power that the courts have and can have for good and have had in the past and can again, um, if um, we emphasize, I think on in the progressive circles, uh, the importance of um, the courts and the importance of having good judges that understand um, humanity and people's rights um, and what the public believes should be enshrined uh, and protected by the constitution and by other laws. So, and public interest law, just to segue to your question, Ashley, um, is a big part of that. I mean, one way to think about it is that 99.9% of lawyers and uh, attorneys, they, wait for somebody to come in their office and give them some money to solve a personal problem that they have. Um, whether that's a small thing like write a will for me or a big thing, I got hit, um, I, got, I, I, slipped in, I slipped in a store and I'd like to sue the, the store owner for the damage from my hurt back, um, having to go to the doctor about that. What we do is fundamentally different than that. And I think fundamentally different than 99.9% .9 of what um, private lawyers do. And in the public interest, um, we don't necessarily wait for a client to walk in the door. We don't take money from a client. Instead, we are proactive like artists. We're able to create uh, on a blank canvas where we can see pain and we can see struggle, whether that's in ecosystems for animals and the environment or for people and their health or for communities that are being adversely impacted in some way. And we then try to use the law as a tool to bring about betterment, to bring about change. And we have to stretch different muscles legally to do that. And we have to create uh, cases that will encompass that. And the goal of our cases are not to make money. The goal of our cases are not to solve a problem for one person. So those are the goals for most people that use the law to make money for themselves or their client to fix a problem for one individual. We use the law to try to make the world a better place for everybody. Yes, we have clients um, that we need to, to be able to go to court. So they're affected maybe a little more directly, but the remedies that we seek in court, the relief that we seek in court 
is to try to um, help everyone to try to have a better environment, uh, a, a more sustainable, more regenerative food system um, to stop foodborne illness, things like that, that will have broader societal effects and change the law in a positive way to build a better legal system, but also to have these uh, exterior effects on um, our social contract, uh, the way that we view our society um, in these ways. So that I think is, um, <coughs> excuse me, makes us stand apart as far as what public interest law does. And we're certainly not alone in doing that. There are lots of wonderful people doing it uh, in our community that we work with, but it's a small community compared to the broader legal community that um, of lawyers. So let's go back to little, little George, little George. What's your journey to public interest law? Oh, um, you know, I think it's a bit meandering overall. I mean, I, I'm, um, I think that, you know, I, I had like most kids, uh, different childhood dreams of what maybe you wanted to be when you grew up. There was a period where I was pretty certain I was going to be the second baseman for the New York Mets. Uh, and then when that failed, I thought maybe I just would be the radio broadcaster for the New York Mets because I, I wasn't good enough to play second. Um, and then as I got a little older, I really loved history, uh, 19th century history. I grew up in a small town that was centered on a Civil War battlefield, uh, and that really affected me. Uh, and I would you know, volunteer there at uh, one of the local Civil War museums, starting at about eight or nine, giving tours, naming everything inside the museum, studying, studying the battlefield. Um, so I, for, for a while there, I thought I would be a professor of history and write books about uh, that period of time and lessons we can take from it, um, being a contextualist, drawing from the past and what lessons, um, uh, which seem particularly salient right now in the struggles that we face as, as a society. Uh, some of those same battles that we've fought over and over again through our history. But um, overarchingly, I think it was the environment and love for nature, and in particular rivers, that kind of overcame that as a young man and spending time in nature um, as, a, as a devoted uh, fly fisherman and outdoorsman, uh, someone who uh, felt very at home there. Uh, that is uh, where kind of my fountain of spirituality came from um, and just feeling uh, a desire uh, and a, a vocation really to protect natural places um, for the future uh, fiercely. And of course, um, being related to Andy and having CFS be part of our familial shared uh, business, having this be a multi-generational family business in, in the best sense of those terms, um, he was a great mentor and influence on me as well. Um, but I never thought that I would work in food law necessarily. I thought I would, uh, if I went to law school, then I would work at kind of a more traditional green group. Um, so when I chose a law school, I chose Lewis and Clark, kind of the number one environmental law school in the country out here in Portland, Oregon, where I live now and where I teach food and agriculture law. Um, because of that program, you know, I, I looked at some really some bigger law schools, got accepted to some, but that's the one that really 
pulled me because I kind of knew that I wanted to do this public interest path and I knew I wanted to do environmental law in particular. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time was that that food law is kind of the new black. It's the it's the 21st century's version of environmental law. And the the what we eat and how we choose to eat is the greatest environmental decision and animal welfare decision that we make every day. And so um, it created this huge um, opportunity marrying those concepts for me. And when I came out of school, that was just starting to explode in the early 2000s and the awareness of that um, CFS being one of the groups that had been doing that work for some time already. You know, prior to law school, I had uh, interned at CFS uh, in college for a summer and um, enjoyed the David and Goliath element of that, enjoyed the work. Um, but I didn't, again, I didn't really see myself working there. Um, so when I finished at school, I went to work for a judge for a while, which was kind of an apprenticeship, which, you know, was a, a seminal experience and uh, one that I probably learned as much as I did in my three years of law school as far as litigation and the law. And when that time finished, I was kind of thinking about different other paths, um, perhaps working at a law firm. Most people, you know, do that. It's a much more lucrative path to take. Um, but yeah, again, you know, Andy um, reached out and said, you know, this is a war and you're drafted and I'd like you to come and work with us. Uh, so, and I, you know, never have regretted that decision. It's been a, a wonderful passion, personal and professional to to do the work. Um, so, you know, that's long story short, how I got here. So you say this is a war. Why don't you tell folks, what is the war? Yeah, sorry for the military metaphor. I'm a little prone to those. Um, well, we know. You know, born on a Civil War battlefield. Yeah, you know, I guess there are different visions of the future of our food and of our planet, you know, uh, competing visions that stem from what's known as the technological dilemma, right? The technological dilemma being that we are currently outstripping the world's resources and the most obvious, you know, um, illustration of that being climate change. You know, we're literally causing the climate to collapse by humanity's activities on our planet. And, you know, this is not a new debate. It's been going on for some time, but in the last several decades, uh, you've had these two camps that have come along as far as how to address the technological dilemma when you are rapidly outstripping your planet's resources. Uh, on the one hand, um, technologists, technocrats, they think the answer is to try, to try to double down on the industrialization of the planet. So everything should be better, more efficiently utilized for humanity's purposes. Um, genetic engineering is part of this. You know, we should take plants, we should take seeds, and we need to make them more efficient for our own purposes. So we need to genetically modify, genetically engineer them to um, try to serve those purposes better uh, in the most part by selling more pesticides is what they ended up being. Or nanotechnology is very similarly like this, except for changing things at the molecular level, again, to try to fact make them into a factory, make them into an industrialized process to serve our particular 
special purposes. Cloning is like this. Um, and so when you have problems um, with regards to the food system, for example, industrial animal factories, animal agriculture, and you have billions uh, of chickens and pigs and cows uh, that are treated in inhumane conditions in these facilities, the answer from that perspective is not to try to um, dismantle those facilities, but instead to change the animal's very nature to better fit those factory um, conditions. So, you know, genetically engineered cows or pigs that maybe don't feel pain as much, for example, um, or have less of their own natural behaviors um, so they don't uh, feel that confinement as much, you know, those types of things. Synthetic biology, another extreme form of genetic engineering. You know, there's a very different way of looking at this problem of outstripping of the natural resources of the world. And it's not a new one. It's actually the oldest one going back to native societies, which is that we need to reform and change our human activities and the way that we approach the natural world and produce food as part of that to mirror and model natural systems. So less straight lines and more circles, um, e eco-shed based food systems, um, not shipping food all over the world, um, allowing animals their natural behavior, eating seasonally, um, farming in a regenerative, healthy way, not separating animal agriculture from plant agriculture, eating less meat, um, so we, or, or vegan or vegetarian in order to ameliorate the impacts uh, on the climate and on the environment from those activities and dismantling the current system, reshaping our food system and our processes as a species in order to stop um, the catastrophic change that we're causing to our planet. So that's the philosophical war that's going on. And I think the balance um, the, the planet hangs in the balance and the food system hangs in the balance. And um, we're reaching an important point, uh, a pivotal point in that battle to determine um, what's going to happen for our children's generation and their children's generations beyond. So um, what we do is a very small piece of that. Uh, that's the 10,000 foot level. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that we do day to day at CFS and our legal team is uh, stopping the bleeding of the industrial system and the harm that it's causing to health and to the environment and to animals. Um, and then also simultaneously trying to shift the consciousness um, through the litigation, as I mentioned, um, both for its on the ground effects, but bro more broadly raising awareness about these issues in um, the media, in the social consciousness, um, to change elections, to change how people view their own relationship with their food and with the native world um, so we can have longstanding societal change and build a better planet and a better food system. So George, what you're saying is in this moment, there is a clash of two visions of our planet. And the food system sort of sits at the nexus of those clashing views. 
And one view is the industrialized view of food and earth and animals, which is that we can engineer plants and animals and processes all for our human wants and needs. And some examples of that you mentioned are CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, genetically engineered animals and plants, specifically plants that have been genetically engineered, primarily to withstand greater and greater um, applications of pesticides. That's sort of the Goliath in the room. And then we have the, the D Davidian alternative, which reflects a lot of the values we see um, continuing in indigenous um, land-based cultures, which is to treat the earth animals as a partner in this process. Um, and I also heard you saying that this clash is sort of reaching an apex. And one example of that that's capturing the public's attention is the shifting of the climate. Although we all know also the ravaging of our oceans and rivers are equally as catastrophic. So I really appreciate you laying out that, that battlefield, so to speak. And then you said CFS plays this small role inside of that. And we talked a little bit about public interest litigation. I want you to bring us into your journey of realizing just how powerful the law can be in helping the Davids fight for the food system that can serve people and the planet. Right battles in the name of David. Yeah. Well, the reason I like the David and Goliath metaphor is, of course, that David won, right? Um, because a lot of people feel hopelessness, especially now, and they feel things are just too dark and too heavy. And um, it's a great example of, and it, and it wasn't luck that David won, right? If you analyze that battle, um, he was chosen because he had a particular skill that was underappreciated by the opposing side and uh, likely um, uh, uh, made them overconfident. Um, and that allowed him to prevail using an older method of warfare that he was particularly good at in a, in a battle of his choosing. Um, so, so anyway, there's, there's a lot more to that. I, I have a long version of that. That's the short version, but that's one reason I really like that metaphor. I, I don't know. I mean, look, Bottom line is, give me the courts every day and twice on Sunday. I mean, I, I have written ballot initiatives. I've worked in our D.C. office and lobbied on Capitol Hill. And as far as I can tell, in our political process, it's controlled by uh, dollars. It's controlled by corporate money. And we have a really hard time with elections, um, whether those are legislative elections um, for, you know, different measures or uh, electing officials, I think at a local level, at a state level, that's a different story and can and you really can effectuate great grassroots change there. We've, we've been a part of that in various different arenas in which we work that I'm very proud of. Um, but overarchingly, what I've found is that in litigation, if you give me um, good facts and, uh, and good law uh, and a good story, I can win. 
uh, we can win. And we have over and over again against whatever the opposition is, the biggest law firms in the country, um, the most powerful corporations in the world. Um, and that's not something I've seen in those other arenas that feel like right now, unfortunately, they're a lot more captured by um, corporate power. Um, so to me, it's been a great lesson in how to be effective in, um, in bringing about change. And as I mentioned, I think through the litigation, you can win cases and you, you want to do that to alleviate suffering on the ground, harm to the environment on the ground, protect endangered species on the ground, protect farmers that are trying to do it the right way on the ground from harm to them um, or beekeepers or, um, you know, communities, impacted communities and their drinking water, whatever it is. But you're also you're also shifting the cultural and and kind of social contract around an issue by enshrining a harm in the law and codifying it in the law, making it matter uh, in a way and uh, in a legal way. And what I've seen is that when you're able to do that, it, it changes the conversation about the given topic uh, in a way that can have longstanding positive change. So you you have different language that you use when you speak about it. It's recognized as a negative impact or a positive outcome. Um, and um, people approach it differently. And so maybe then you can also go to those other arenas, legislative arenas, um, um, marketplace arenas, and have success there because of the legal change and the recognition of whatever the issue is um, that you're trying to address. Um, you know, the 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 story I like to give about this, the most prominent, one of the most prominent examples has to do with climate change. And that's the Massachusetts v. EPA case, Environmental Protection Agency case in 2007. Um, so most people, if you, most lawyers know about this case, it's the first Supreme Court case on the issue of climate change. What most people don't know is that the origin of that case was actually a legal petition by our organization in 1999 when larger green groups weren't really addressing the issue of climate yet. And that tiny legal petition went through the courts and eventually arrived at the Supreme Court. And this was earlier in my career. I was in DC at the time. I attended that Supreme Court argument. It was one of the first ones I saw in person. And in Washington, DC at that time, there wasn't a lot of conversation. The conversation about climate was, is it real? Is global warming a real thing? Is it really happening? And after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the petitioners in Massachusetts v. EPA, which by the time it got to the Supreme Court included lots of green groups, as well as many states, including Massachusetts, um, that had come on board, um, that conversation overnight changed from, is it real? To, okay, the Supreme Court said it's real, so now what are we going to do about it? And, you know, shamefully, we haven't unfortunately done very much in the subsequent years at a federal level, um, which is a different conversation. But the point of the litigation was that it really shifted that conversation, I think, uh, societally uh, and in the halls of power in DC um, because of the case, because of this little case, this little petition that had started a few years before by a few small nonprofits. I'd love to know another story, if you can kind of have us all sit on the floor in crisscross applesauce and um, hear you wax poetic 
about some of the battles you faced. Can you tell us about another case you've taken to the Supreme Court and what was at stake and what ended up happening and what was protected and, and what shifted because of that work? And I think in the process, maybe highlighting what it actually involves to take a public interest case to the Supreme Court, because I think we're all wondering how these hard right activists did what they did with Roe v. Wade. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think a better example, a, a positive progressive example that I study as a historian, contextualist, someone who looks to the past to try to find solutions for the future and the present is the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s and the work of um, the NAACP legal fund and Thurgood Marshall and his team of lawyers there um, to uh, end um, separate but equal and to win Brown v. Board of Education uh, and more largely equality um, in the law. Uh, and I think that's a was a multi-decade campaign of litigation, mostly in courtrooms all over the country, including the Deep South at that time, um, that eventually culminated in the decisions like Brown v. Board um, from the Supreme Court at that time. Now you had a very different Supreme Court, the Warren Court, to the Roberts Court that we have now, which is different conversation. But so you can see that you need a long-term vision, you need strategic planning. Um, another example um, would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work with um, the American Civil Liberties Union as an attorney before she became the famous, the infamous RBG on the court um, and, and a heroine there. She was, um, you know, a litigator who argued a, a, some of the most important cases on women's rights to the successfully to the Supreme Court um, in the 1960s. Um, and early 70s. And of course, at that time, the court was nine white men. And she she won those cases because she brought smart cases, strategic cases um, about enshrining these principles of equality um, under the Constitution. So um, but yeah, no, I mean, to your question, Ashley, I think, you know, m the vast majority of our cases that we bring either in state or federal court are district court cases, sometimes at the Court of Appeals. Uh, either on appeal or directly, uh, much more rare since the Supreme Court here. So, so fewer cases. We have one other, m myself personally, I have one other case uh, that I was heavily involved in was the lead on uh, the Geertsen Seats Farm case in 2010, which was a case about farmers and genetically engineered crops, in particular, a Roundup Ready alfalfa that um, <coughs> Monsanto created that was resistant to its flagship pesticide Roundup. It was the first um, type crop that wasn't a um, perennial. It was an annual, uh, sorry, it wasn't an, an annual, it was a perennial crop. So, you know, you have all over out here in the West, lots of um, uh, feral alfalfa that grows uh, two to four years and create kind of uh, a transmission bridge where you can, uh, it's also bee pollinated, it's not wind pollinated and bees go between fields and pollinate uh, at miles distance. So if you were trying to grow organic alfalfa or even just conventional non-GMO alfalfa, you have a real problem if there is going to be a genetically engineered variety because bees 
don't read signs. Bees just pollinate between fields. Uh, so in that case, uh, we brought a challenge to the approval of this uh, new genetically engineered crop on behalf of um, environmental organizations, several environmental organizations, including our own, but also several farmers that wanted to not grow Monsanto's alfalfa, wanted to continue to grow their family varieties, their open pollinated varieties that they had grown for generations. Um, and it was the first case of its kind uh, that was heard under the National Environmental Policy Act, um, at having to do with the duties of the government to really analyze impacts to endangered species and the environment, but also to farmers. What did it mean for farmers to lose that choice to grow the crop of their choice? And what were the impacts to them from that cross-pollination and the movement, the unintended movement to them of that genetically engineered material? And remember what I said before about the war of words. In the old days before the alfalfa case, uh, that was called advantageous presence. So like it was an advantage to you to have this Monsanto DNA in your crop. Well, we called it transgenic contamination or genetic contamination, which is that you have your own variety that you've grown throughout your family for generations. And now it has this patented DNA, which by the way, the patent holder that can then sue you for patent infringement if it's if it's in there from it. And this is a harm to you. This is this harms your rights to grow the crop of your choice and sell the crop of your choice to your customers. Uh, it hurts your livelihood. It's an economic harm, but it's also this irreparable harm. Irreparable is a legal term that means it cannot be remedied by money alone. It means it is a harm to you that is beyond just money damages. And a lot of what we do has to do with trying to stop irreparable harm. Um, so anyway, we won that case at the I'm district I'm going to pause court. right there just because I think there's a couple things you said that I think are really important to sort of emphasize. Um, and one is we just continue to want to challenge the notion that genetic engineering is about driving progress in our food system for these broadly held goals of like ending hunger or resisting climate change or fighting drought. I mean, what we work on as an organization is broadly addressing that these companies are genetically engineering plants largely to withstand the pesticides that they manufacture. And so in the case of alfalfa, just important for our listeners to understand that this is not a, a genetically engineered alfalfa that's meant to do anything more than deliver more pesticides into our environment. I, I really always want to pause there um, in this work that we do because I think it gets lost um, on people. So I just wanted to pause there. And then yes. the other thing that I heard um, you say is sort of in passing is this um, notion of irreparable harm and the tact that we take at Center for Food Safety or that public interest law firms take is not to remedy the one farmer who might have experienced contamination, but rather to change the laws and the governmental processes enforcing those laws to ensure that all people's harm is protected now. So we took that case against the government 
to say that they weren't fully understanding what was happening to organic or family bred alfalfa farmers. Right. Yeah. And not protecting them, not considering their interests. And remarkably, you know, there had been a number of Roundup Ready, other crops, corn, soy, cotton that they had, canola that they had previously approved really blindly in the same way. So the win that we got in alfalfa meant that going forward and since that time, this is around 2008, um, the government hasn't been able to do that. They've had to issue what's called environmental impact statements, which are these very long documents that document and analyze and consider, okay, how much pesticide increase into the environment is this crop going to cause if we approve it? Okay, is that pesticide going to drift to another farmer's crops or to a native ecosystem or a wildlife refuge and cause harm there to endangered species or native species or to the soil? Um, and, you know, are we going to still have a conventional and organic industry that's non-GMO if bees are cross-pollinating this stuff everywhere? Um, so, you know, I think the win in that case on the merits um, was big in that it required the government to do a lot better as far as the transparency and the rigor in which they brought to these decisions. Um, anyway, the... I think everything else you said actually was well was well uh, summarized. The 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 decision itself we won at the district court, and long story short, we went up to the court of appeals and we won twice at the court of appeals, and um, you know thought the case was over since the Supreme Court doesn't really hear too many cases, a hundred a year out of thousands that they're asked to hear. Um, but Monsanto had intervened in the case as often as the case or the pesticide company in a lot of these pesticide cases we litigate and asked the Supreme Court to hear the case and they agreed to hear it. And so we went to the Supreme Court and um, litigated the case there. There the, the issues were more about the remedy uh, that the district court had put in place. The district court had given us two remedies, uh, kind of a belt and suspenders approach. And the, we got out of the Supreme Court with the best result in the realm of reality, according to people a lot smarter than me, law professors uh, that have analyzed the case. Um, but the end result was that uh, there wasn't genetically engineered alfalfa that was allowed to be marketed at the time. And we had, again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of enshrined these principles in the law that this type of movement was now a type of contamination. It was a type of biological pollution that was recognized for purposes of standing to go to court. It was recognized for purposes of the merits of our core environmental laws, like the National Environmental Policy Act. And it was recognized for purposes of remedies, like injunctions and like uh, setting aside agency actions, wipe, wiping them out, striking them down. Um, so those were fundamental shifts uh, that since that time have been different and improvements based on that case. Now, did it take several years off my life uh, to go to the Supreme Court? Sure, probably. Um, but, you know, uh, it was, uh, I think, you know, it's amazing. It's an amazing experience to, to um, be able to represent people and farmers, you know, the, our two main clients in that case, Phil Geertsen and Pat Trask, and be at the Supreme Court with them. Um, for that argument, you know, I'll never forget that day. So, you know, it was um, one of those one of those moments that you carry forward uh, and draw from, you know, in the work, especially, you know, on the days where 
it does feel heavy uh, potentially and you, you need to be able to draw from the well of those examples from the past um, and say you know no you know David won we can win we do win uh, I want to think about the darkness with you for a minute because I think again with this draft decision coming out of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and now effectively making abortion illegal in almost half of the United States. Tell us a little bit about the challenges that you faced in your work and, and sort of how your work has shifted because of these darker moments. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a much different environment um, right now in the courts than when I started out. Um, you know, I think the Trump years, unfortunately, had a lot to do with that. They're not just the three Supreme Court justices, but the, you know, 200 judges that Trump placed on the federal courts around the country. Um, I think the Biden folks have done a really good job um, appointing not just um, uh good judges, but diversity judges, judges that bring both personal and professional diversity to the courts. Um, a lot of public defenders, a lot of people that have worked for nonprofits like ours. I'd like to see a few more environmental lawyers. Haven't seen that yet, but we've seen civil rights lawyers um, and other public interest um, minded people. It just matters who's who the judges are. Um, and, and I hope that I think progressive folks out there, the progressive movement, the Democratic Party uh, more generally, need to emphasize the importance of the courts. I mean, the reason the conservatives um, are at the precipice of getting their white whale that they've sought for 30 years as far as um, overturning Roe v. Wade is because they have done that in elections. They have made um, the courts an issue in elections. They've said, you need to vote for Trump because he's going to appoint judges that will help us overturn Roe v. Wade. The left has not done that. They have not emphasized the importance of courts. And the, the progressive voter, I don't think largely, and maybe now they will uh, a little bit more, um, <clears throat> but it's a much more treacherous waters. It's a much more treacherous environment for us to do the things I've been talking about um, to effectuate positive change because we have seen capture, regulatory capture um, now more in the judicial branch. Um, and I think, the understanding of the courts as another political branch, that it is not a neutral arbiter necessarily in the way that in the past people have seen it um, in a white tower. It is a political operating branch, just like the legislative branch, just like the executive branch. And again, I think the hard right has understood that for a while and has used that to their advantage successfully, whereas the progressive movement has failed uh, to do that. Um, successfully. So, you know, the challenges for us, um, as, as always, you know, you, you have losses and when you really care about your work, um, you take that to heart. Uh, you know, you, 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 the blood and the sweat and uh, the thousands of hours, uh, the long nights and weekends, um, it's a, it's a great blessing to really love what you do, but any vocation like that, when you lose, it, you know, you take it very, you take it very hard. So you, the trick is, I think, for people that want to be social change activists, whether they're lawyers or not, is you have to protect your sense of self from the work. So the work is over here. 
and you have to stay strong and you have to have other fountains of joy and um, fulfillment that you draw from besides the work. The work otherwise will consume you. So for me, in large part, I love, as I mentioned, nature and uh, fly fishing, uh, camping, being outdoors. I love to garden and to be in my yard. And I have, you know, I love my family and my children. For me, they're the wellspring and my wife, you know, they're the wellspring of joy for me that if I have a hard day, I can come home and see their smiles. And, you know, that helps me to get through those moments. Can you tell us a little bit about a lesson that you learned in your last sort of dark night of the soul? Um, something that shifted in you as an activist or an advocate, whether it was like a doubling down on a strategy or a shifting in position um, that others might be able to learn from your harder, harder times. You know, one of the mantras, I gave one mantra that that already that um, that we have here at Center for Food Safety, which is we stop the bleeding and we shift the consciousness through the work at the same time. Another one that helps me often is you, you don't have to win. You just have to be faithful. So I, I have that mantra quite a bit, which is just generally the idea that it's enough to do the work and put it out into the universe, regardless of the outcome. If I feel like our team has done the, the caliber of work with honor that um, that we can do using the tools we have and given it everything we have, then um, then that's it. That that then that's where we are, and there is victory in that. And then you know, I think the other the other lesson that's much more of a um, I think wisdom age lesson is you know sometimes when you lose you still win. You know, I've had that occur at a number of times where technically we lost a case, but because of the case for whatever reason it was. Um, you know, we ended up having really positive effects um, from the effort expended on it in some way. Um, and that and that's been very telling to me and, and helpful as well. I want to talk a little bit about work life balance, um, because I know that you do strive to play a role in your family's life and be a present father. And yet at the same time, you're running this small and mighty legal op um, and serving in administrative and managerial roles for better or for worse. Um, how, how have you learned to balance that? Um, like, and, and, and how does it continue to challenge you um, as a leader and as a father? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I have an amazing partner who is also an accomplished lawyer in her, her own right. Um, so she gets most of the credit for everything. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so I would say, uh, you know, that's very important. That's been a, a wonderful piece of my life to, to be able to share uh, with her uh, the journey. And, you know, I mean, other than that, I, I think it's a little different for everyone. Um, for me, as, as I mentioned, having um, being able to separate um, work life uh, completely. I think during COVID, um, you know, there's some wonderful things about working at home. 
Um, you don't have to commute. Um, you don't. Uh, you can work in your pajamas if you want. Um, but one of the problems for me is is not having that physical separation from the work. So I'm here in my office today, and for a lot of COVID, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to to be here um, as well, and that and that helps me when I shut the door um, and leave the work here. Um, so I think it's a little it's a little different for for everyone. Just ensuring that you have those activities. Uh, for me, it's you know fly fishing, going to Montana where I do where I do quite quite a bit of fly fishing, uh, spending time with my kids in nature. Um, this weekend we were you know at the uh, Washington coast razor clamming, for example, just being being in in natural environments and um, generationally uh, is is a wellspring that you know you bring back to the work refreshed. You, you kind of remember why you're doing what you're doing um, in a very helpful way. I often tell students that when they finish law school, they're clerking with us or spending some uh, uh, season with us. I'll, I'll say, make sure that you take some time before you take the bar or over summer to go and do. Remember why you're putting yourself through all this um, and, and why you why you're doing this. So. Um, I think that's very important. What do you think is some of the most exciting public in interest litigation um, in food systems happening right now? Like what should people be paying attention to? Well, there's some really important work being done with climate and the public trust doctrine and uh, generational rights. There's a new Netflix documentary um, that just came out last week. I forget the name of it, you versus the government or something like that, but it's about some of the climate litigation that's being brought on behalf of teenagers and preteens against the government for failing to do more to address um, climate change. Um, I, I think advancing really um, important theories um, you know, as we mentioned, the court system, we need to win some elections and we need to get some more judges that view human rights and view environmental rights as fundamental and understand the cases that we're bringing in uh, the world, our view of um, the technological dilemma and things like that. Um, but in the inner room, um, I think having things, setting down markers um, and making waves, you know, um, even if they're in dissents in court opinions, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the long journey of social change. You know, I think it's um, Mother Jones who says that, you know, the, the history of social movements is you struggle and fail, you struggle and fail, you struggle and fail, you struggle and succeed. So even if a legal theory that we bring now isn't successful, um, if um, I bring it. I'm, I'm creating a pathway that potentially someone can succeed. My daughter, perhaps, or it, it, maybe it takes another generation um, in the future. And so I gain a lot of hope from that, knowing that the things I write, the thing, the the the, the cases we bring, the causes that we champion, even if they currently aren't successful, um, are are creating these pathways that can be successful in the future. And 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 in turn 
when we do succeed, we almost always stand on the shoulders of past generations. You know, the, the founders of the environmental movement in the 1960s, Rachel Carson and others of that time, for, for example, it's certainly not on our own. But I think there's some really important cases to get very specific, actually, having to do with um, people's right to know in, in the food, um, what they eat and what they feed their families and the battle for the label. Because I think a lot of um, our food decisions are made in the grocery store. And so what information we have and how meaningful that information is, is really important because of that really critical interface and decision context for most Americans. Um, and I think uh, there's also some really, really important um, litigation right now that is raising the broader impacts of industrial agriculture on the environment and its impacts on endangered species and on climate change. Agriculture usually gets a pass when it comes to climate, even though it's a major, major contributor uh, to the crisis. Uh, and so I think, you know, environmentally, those are two areas to really keep an eye on. Um, as well as kind of more in the consumer realm and um, how we can really improve access to not just information for consumers, but meaningful information, the information that they want and the information in a form that they can understand and apply, you know, in the store. I think we all remember the battle for labeling. Um, I know you were incredibly active and engaged in both California, Washington, and Oregon fighting for GE labeling. Um, can you talk a little bit about that battle and where it's at and what you learned as a leader? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I feel like I've worked on that issue my whole career. I definitely have. And even, you know, it started, um, before before me, but you mentioned the the ballot initiatives. I co-authored um, uh, three different ballot initiatives on the labeling, the mandatory labeling of genetically engineered food. First one in California, and then in 2000 2012 in Washington 2013, Oregon 2014, and then we also helped um, support and pass legislation. Um, in other states that were similar to the ballot initiatives. You know, what I learned from the ballot initiative fight, it, it harkens back to what I mentioned earlier, which is it's who, which side can pile the most money on the scale. I mean, in the Oregon fight, uh, we lost by 800 votes, 838 votes. It's still the closest election in Oregon history, even though they outspent us um, five to one and crushed the ballot spending record. Same thing in Washington. We lost 51% to 49%. Again, Monsanto, Coca-Cola, other companies crushed the state record for ballot spending. Same thing in California the year before. Um, but through the ballot initiatives, even though we lost, we won because these other states, were Vermont, Connecticut, and um, Maine were able to pass legislation. And eventually the passage of their legislation after we helped defend it from challenges from the Grocery Manufacturers Association and federal court um, led to um, the federal law passing in 2016, which was the first ever nationwide um, genetically engineered food labeling law in the U.S. Now, unfortunately, that law left a lot to be desired because the companies that were unhappy with our state laws that we had helped 
champion and draft, um, found a venue much more to their liking in Congress. And like a lot of legislation, it was certainly a compromise uh, in passing what's known as the federal bioengineered disclosure standard. And so to answer your question, to get to the end of your question, Ashley, currently we're challenging that federal law and it's implementing rules uh, for not being good enough in various ways. One of which is that it allows companies to hide the information in a QR code scan on your phone, which requires consumers to go around and scan dozens if they have a smartphone and if they live in an area that has broadband in their supermarket to um, scan dozens of items. And as a parent with little with small children, I can tell you how uh, impracticable and impossible that is in a grocery store to even contemplate. Um, as well as discriminating against large segments of the population. Um, as I mentioned, rural areas, minorities, the elderly that don't have smartphones. Um, we're also challenging other aspects of the law, the prohibition on states improving and private actors like co-ops that want to do better and provide more information. The fact they use this new term bioengineered that nobody's ever heard of, despite the fact that for decades now, Anyone involved in this area has used genetically engineered or genetically modified. <coughs> Excuse me. And the fact that the law um, exempts um, highly processed foods like sodas and oils, which is uh, the vast majority of genetically engineered foods. So uh, and that case is proceeding to uh, to trial and summary judgment later this year. So that's very exciting. We filed that case, I think about two years ago now, and we've been proceeding through district court on it. And we should have, we're hoping to have a decision later this year by the end of the year. I love this example because you get a smattering of all the different strategies for social change. So for our listeners, GE labeling strikes at the heart of this broader ideological battle for the future of our food. And sort of in the small scale, local, regenerative, organic and beyond worldview, our assumption is that if people understood that they were eating genetically engineered foods and they understood that genetic engineering is the gateway to herbicides into the food supply, because we remember that until crops were genetically engineered, if you sprayed them with an herbicide, they die. So if folks understood this, they probably would vote with their dollars in a different way. Um, And so community activists across the United States went to the ballot initiative process, I'm assuming because they felt like they couldn't move it through the legislative process for all the moneyed interest reasons that you talked about. And what we saw in those ballot initiative processes is that these companies leveraged their massive financial resources to stop people's right to know whether or not genetically engineered ingredients and the herbicides they allow into the food supply, um, to know whether or not they were consuming those products. these community activists, I mean, I was, this is right in my baby days at Center for Food Safety. The world felt alive with efficacy. I mean, I've, 
it felt incredible that so many people were going door to door, getting petitions signed. They were educating one another. They were advocating for participation in food systems activism. I don't know if food systems activism had a bigger clarion call nationally that like it's time to engage um, and we lose. Um, by the, the tiniest margins of error, and yet activists still are able to carry that battle forward, pass it through their legislative processes in more liberal states. And that brings forward this broader federal law, which was a little bit of a falsy, which we see actually that sometimes we think we're passing a law and then it gets hollowed out at the last minute and now we're left with QR codes. And so CFS continuing on in this battle is now serving in the public interest by suing the government to say that the law that they passed doesn't actually serve all people. And you following this whole battle continue to feel that litigation is the way to go. Yeah, it's funny when I go to 7-Eleven with my daughter, you know, she, after soccer, sometimes she'll want to go there and I'll say, okay, fine. And we, we, we have a fun game where we'll find the genetically engineered produced with genetic engineering labeling on the product. And I'll say, I can't tell you how many years I fought for those three little <laughs> words right there, you know, whatever it is, sweet tarts or, you know, whatever candy bar, whatever it is, cause they're all produced with GE, but absolutely right, Ashley. I mean, I think it is a great example in all those different ways. I mean, what I like to say is the GE food battle is a proxy, sorry, more military yes, examples. It's, <laughs> it's a proxy war for the larger battle that we've been talking about, about the future of, of our food for the reasons that you put so well, which is that um, it represents, that's their vision, this type of food, this industrial food. And so giving people the choice to choose differently and say, no, thank you. I'm going to choose a different future for our food. So, so it's the tip of the spear in this proxy war over the future of our food. And, and it, so it's important in and of itself for what it means, but it's more important because it educates people about this divide and about this choice that we have as a society for how we choose to produce our food and what we want to feed our families. Something that I, I think I emphasized in our conversation with Charlie Tebbett, another lawyer in the good fight for a better earth, but playing a different role than public interest law, um, was helping folks to understand also the differentiation of this moment, um, which is that only the government can provide equal protection to all people. Certainly we as educated consumers can to opt out of the industrial food system through our dollars. We can choose to buy local organic foods, um, but only the government can prevent certain ingredients, certain chemicals, certain toxins from entering the food supply or raising awareness when those toxins are present. Um, and so, I think for a lot of folks, it's understanding that we need to do more than shop with our dollars. We also need to fight to change the rules of the game so that these companies are held accountable 
for the adverse impacts that they're having, not only on people's lives, like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, but also on our environment, because we know that the growing of genetically engineered crops is the silent decimator for so many of our insect species, our plant species, and just the broader rural ecosystems upon which our entire planet um, relies. We should change our light bulbs and recycle, but we're not gonna save the planet doing that. Uh, so on our side, we need all the tools in the toolkit. If you wanna go to law school, great. I think we need more lawyers that are doing the good work. And one of the reasons, the, the main reason um, I teach is to try to um, bring what I've learned to the school and to excite um, students that are already at a great institution and are there with a public interest kind of bent towards the food system and reforming it, dismantling it. And I'm proud that we have several lawyers on our staff now that have you know, come through my class. Um, and, but for the most part, we need, we need, we need so many scientists. We need scientists that are willing to work on policy issues and not just be, you know, in a laboratory or in the white tower of academia and put their skill set to, to that work. We need campaigners. We need organizers. We need media. Um, so uh, I think it's an exciting time that there's a lot going on as far as, um, causes, social causes, as we've been discussing. And for young people, um, I'm encouraged that I see younger people that do seem public interest motivated. Unlike I think most people in my own generation that, that I didn't find to be public interest motivated. Um, but it's going to take more than, than marketplace changes. You know, we have, I think, voluntary, um, the, the track record of voluntary measures and market-based measures to change um, and solve uh, big problems, societal problems or, or environmental problems um, or food system problems is, is abysmal. So yes, you can have great private labels and certifications, for example, but you need a federal organic standard to set a floor and say, no, we're gonna have a different uh, required regulatory system that's transparent and means something. It means no GMOs, no pesticides, no sewage sludge, um, and from there, you can improve on that through market-based systems. Uh, so, you know, you we need to view government as um, an, as an important uh, effectuator of public good and there to serve for us. I think our society right now, unfortunately, the far right has done a, has a good a job villainizing the government and saying that it's it's not serving a public good. Um, and so, for the most part, when it's captured by corporate interests. Um, that's true, but the idea of it, of having a social safety network and having a government that provides benefits for society um, is, is hugely important. And the only way that we're going to solve some of these big problems um, is going to be through empowering and breathing life into those tools, legal and otherwise. Yeah, one of my hopes for this podcast is we highlight and kind of dig into the details of folks' journeys in activism and heroism is to help highlight the necessary role of government. I mean, I think one of the other um, effects of sort of this emerging 
conservative culture is that we have lost our respect for public service, for serving in governmental and regulatory agencies with real sort of public interest in mind. Folks aren't running for office um, because of just the gamesmanship um, that elections have now required. Um, and as a result, you know, I always tell folks, well, the legislative process is going on and we can be mad that corporations have taken it over, but we're also not there. So can you really be mad that they want a battle that we, the public haven't showed up to? Um, and so I hope that folks see these sort of on-ramps into activism through public interest law or public interest um, legal and policy advocacy as a necessary tool in the toolkit, because that's why we formed this government thing in the first place, was because it, it, there is a point of having some sort of institutional bodies protecting people and, and ever, ever more our environment and our four-legged friends. Yeah. Amen. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do, unfortunately, is, is trying to watchdog and ensure the government's doing its job. And then if they're not, we do it for them, but I'd much prefer that they actually just did their job more <laughs> of the time because <laughs> then, you know, I had, I'd have more time to go fly fishing. So that'd be good. Yeah. Well, to more time, let's figure <laughs> that's going to be my next advocacy work is how to create more time. That's right. Um, I think that's a good place to end. So we thank you. I mean, any last, like, what's the greatest piece of advice you've ever received as an activist that you could share with our listeners as they're contemplating their own journeys into activism and change making? Well, um, I, I'm pretty fond of this uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote up here on my wall. Mm. Um, that's probably the the one that I um, that I go to the most often. I I should have it memorized by now, but it's the famous quote about the man in the arena. Uh, so it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit is to the man or woman who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly and errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and who spends herself on a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if she fails, at least she fails while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. It's a good one. And so what do you take from that? Like, how do you walk away just to stay in the arena and keep fighting? Yeah. I mean, be in the arena, find your arena, find your arena and be in it. And don't worry about what anybody else is saying about how you're not doing well enough or um, how maybe you're, you're putting things at risk or, um, you know, you're, you're not succeeding, whatever the criticisms are, whatever the critics are saying, 
Don't worry about any of that. Just be in the arena and spend yourself on a worthy cause, on a great devotion. We have a limited amount of time on this earth. And, you know, if you're a lawyer, do you want to go spend that at a law at a law firm? Like basically shuffling money from one corporation another to another with the moral, doing the moral equivalent of crossword puzzles? Is that how you want to spend your intellect? The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duray Shin, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.